You're listening to the Hybrid Cloud Podcast. Hey, this is Chris Evans here, and I'm with Matt Starr. How are you doing, Matt? I'm very good. Even with COVID, I'm doing pretty good. Excellent. So could you just give everybody who's listening an idea of what you do, a company, and then we'll dive straight into our conversation for today? I'm with Spectrologic. I'm their CTO. Spectrologic's a 40-year-old storage company based in Boulder, Colorado. We do secondary storage. So we do areas where it's archive, backup, long-term storage. I run our HPC business, our federal, and our APJ sales business. So I get to travel the world and tell our customers about our products. And sit in hotel rooms recording podcasts. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously for everybody who can't see us, because we don't record our video, but you are in a hotel today. So yeah. hopefully that our audio hangs together, which I'm sure will be fine. It's interesting you just talked about the idea of secondary storage. And this is an area where over the years, companies like yourselves have built up big portfolios of technology that initially started with tape and then you moved on to disk. And as the industry sort of migrated forward, people have tended to look at this and think, well, maybe we should be moving to the cloud and maybe this sort of data, especially unstructured data or backup data or whatever you have, maybe this data would be more suitable sitting in a cloud environment. As a result, our conversation today is really to talk about exactly how people might make that decision, how they might look at it and say, should I go down the route of using a cloud? Maybe at some point, scalability means I shouldn't go down the route of cloud. And how do I even make that decision about where I should put stuff and how I should do that calculation? So that's going to be our topic today. And clearly, Matt, you must talk to a lot of people who are very interested in using the cloud, but maybe confused about how they go about purchasing it. So our customer base certainly is investigating cloud. And most of the time, it's for a couple of different reasons. The first one is, you know, they have an edict coming down from above saying, you know, we're moving to cloud. The CEO decided to move to cloud. And then we have the other ones where they're looking for second copy. They're looking for another way to scale their business. And those are two different models where you're forcing it down onto the IT staff. Most of the time, the IT staff knows the pitfalls, but they're being forced to move to it. And then when it's the IT staff architecture driving up, that's usually a better designed architecture. So we have both those in our customer base. And it's interesting you say that companies make a decision that they're going to go down that route of cloud almost like it's a diktat, you know, as if somebody said to you, you must drive forward every day you, you have a car. You know, you're narrowing your own selection criteria very simply. So it always seems a bit strange to me when people make that decision, but I can sort of see why people think the cloud's a good opportunity because you look at the ease of purchase, you know, you can walk in with a credit card, you can get started, you're not investing tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars. So you can sort of see the attraction because it makes sense, doesn't it really? It does, especially if I was going to start up a small company today, I would not buy a Windows server and run Exchange locally. I would put that in the cloud. I would put my entire infrastructure for that in the cloud. The difference becomes if my business was data. If I'm a coffee shop, data is a byproduct of my business. It's the receipts and some other things here. But if my business is data, then my product happens to be data. It could be genomic information. It could be media and entertainment data. It could be things coming off a collider. That data is the product. And now what you're saying, instead of outsourcing my data center, I'm outsourcing my factory. And that's a big change when you're talking about that. When you outsource the factory, you're no longer the actual person building the product. You're outsourcing most of your infrastructure of your factory. So that's the difference that we see with the companies that once they go to cloud that are successful, 
usually are not the massive data holders. They're usually not the ones that where data is their product or a subcomponent of their product. They are usually the ones where cloud facilitates them focusing on their core business and data being their receipts and their ERP system. That part is easy to put into the cloud. I agree with you. And I think I'd just like to add one little bit to that. And that's this idea of thinking about how we look at what the cloud offers. And we'll probably come and touch that on that when we talk about product in a bit more detail. And that is really the fact that everybody sort of winds back to Henry Ford and say, you know, you could have any color as long as it's black. You really have no choice in public cloud in terms of modifying the options of what you get offered. What you get offered is what you get given and you use it the way the vendor has decided to build it. And if you don't like it, well, go and find another provider or build it yourself. And I think that can be initially not a big deal for customers. You know, smaller customers might think, that's fine. The way they offer everything to me today looks all good. But actually, the more mature you become, the further down the route you go, and I think this will probably be part of our discussion, you suddenly start realizing that actually that's not necessarily the greatest way to work for you. Yeah, I think that when you look at, especially longer-term storage, what are they doing with your data and how are they storing it and does it meet your SLAs? Is a four-hour, 12-hour SLA what you need for your data? Because like you're saying, it's fixed. You can pay a lot more to maybe beat that cold SLA, but it's not really designed to be flexible as what we say within, inside the data center. If the CEO or the CIO needs a file back and he can call the IT director and say, I need that file now, make it fast, the guy has the ability to turn the knob. Okay, I'm going to ask you one more question, then we'll dive into the idea of the whole idea of why the cloud could be a challenge which you scale up higher. And that's just to think, how long have we had S3? When did S3 come in? 2006? So we've had, what, 14 years of S3? How many people have got objects that are on S3 that were on S3 when it first started? One of the things I haven't really seen any discussion about is that long-term archive of data. So imagine you're in a business where you need to keep that data for maybe 50, 60 or lifetime plus number of years, you know. I'm not sure whether I've seen anything that says how Amazon will commit to making sure that the durability is there to make sure that you can find that in 50 years' time. Do you think that's relevant in this discussion at this point, or do you think we're so early into the cloud discussion that we don't need to worry about that yet? I think that is a wormhole that when you go into it and you start really tearing it apart, you really find a lot of gotchas. You know, you talk about data provenance. Did anybody touch it? Did anybody modify it? Did it corrupt itself? When it was copied n times and reflected, what happened to it? Who's responsible for that data if a bit flips, hmm. right? And a bit flip in some data is not bad. A bit flip in a compressed image, since it's been compressed, is very, very bad especially if it's in the actual instruction of where the rest of the data is, it really, that's what messes up a lot of the video streams. So I always think about that. If you're thinking the cloud is your copy of your data, that's a bad choice to start with. If you're protecting something for, you know, a hundred plus or 50 plus life or whatever it may be, you need to really think about the architecture being, you know, geographic separation. You need to think about fingerprinting your data. You need to think about multiple copies on genetically diverse infrastructure, all those things, because if you pull that data back and it's different, how do you know if it's a one terabyte file? So checksums and things like that. I think that cloud can be a copy, but if you think that putting three copies in the same cloud vendor is a way to success, that's not it. Cloud should be one of those copies, I think. So that's definitely something that sort of keep in the back of our minds as we go further. Now, 
As you started with using cloud, and we'll use storage probably as an example here, because that obviously fits in with the business you offer. But I guess it's the same thing applies to everything, really. You start to realize that actually the consumption model isn't consistent. So, for example, you might put a lot of content into the cloud and you know it grows over time. So that cost profile is unpredictable because you get charged for usage. So, you know, as you access data and pull it out of the cloud and maybe move it on-prem or do other things with it, you're going to be charged for that and for access. So your costs will be variable even though they're fixed in the sense that the pricing structure is fixed, but the actual consumption drives variable pricing that you may not really be 100% sure about month to month. And there's also the end of lease idea, which is it's almost as if you know, you're renting your furniture thinking that, okay, by the end of this lease, I'm going to own my furniture. Well, at the end of this lease, they take your furniture away. You have to pull all that data back out. If you're going to end the contract with them, you also have to pull it all out. The variability, to your point, is as the data becomes more valuable, it gets highlighted and you need to pull it down, your variable costs can double what you're currently paying. And there's enough data out there of people having left the cloud when they pushed an archive into the cloud and then decided that they needed to pull data down for use. That blossomed their pricing. I've got a question for you. Do you use Spotify at all? I do. So what are you going to do when you decide you don't want to pay your X amount a month from Spotify? You're going to have no music collection. It's just going to be gone. There's an interesting side note. You know, rights management in the music industry is a multi-billion dollar business just to keep track of people looking for music and YouTube videos that are that is licensed. In theory, when I buy a song from Apple, I bought a license to that song, but I can't transfer that right to another provider. Yeah, so you're right. It's an interesting, I own it, but I don't own it. I could talk to you about that all day because 20 years ago, actually, I had a music company. I set up a music company, co-founded one, and we sold music and we had all the DRM issues. We even wrote some software to allow it to work. And trying to account for that when we were paying the royalties to people was such a hard job. So, yeah, I entirely understand that. But you're right, you know, that's a good example of something where you say you've got an ongoing operational use for that particular thing but once you don't want to pay anymore sorry but it's all going to go and uh, you know if you're in the cloud you're either going to have to pull that data out the cloud or you're going to have to keep on paying and that could be quite a challenge in a business model like we're in today where you don't really know whether you're going to have business next month or the month after and you might have to really cut down on costs and that's one cost you just simply can't cut down on because if that data is valuable to you you cannot afford to just say i'll just delete it and i won't pay next month yeah i used to have s3 buckets where i was doing test work. And I can remember I logged into the account one day and something happened. I had the old work credit card on that and my data was gone. I mean, they reinstituted my account very easily when I gave them the credit card, but the data was all gone. They got rid of it. Oh yeah. It was just test data, but it was one of these things where my fault was a test bucket. I was playing with it. I put some stuff up there and credit card expired. And two or three months later, I went up to do something and the data's gone. You don't get it back. End of job done. Yeah. Right. Well, I don't want to be overly negative on the public cloud because obviously in the right circumstances, in the right place, we know it's hugely valuable because there wouldn't be the number of companies that are out there using it today. And we've already said at the very beginning, you know, you said yourself, you would start off by building a company that was based in the public cloud. You wouldn't go off and do it outside of that today because it just makes no sense in lots of different ways. Having said that, as we've seen with Dropbox and other companies who've scaled to a level where they've looked at it and said, we've got to the point where we just can't afford to keep paying this amount of money out every month. You need to start looking at other ways to do things. So the challenge is, how do you do that? And I'm really interested to hear what you've got to say on that. So Dropbox is a good example of somebody that started in the cloud, 
infrastructure grew, and at the end, they became their own club, right? They built their own data centers and stood up hardware. I can tell you, you have to go through the contract that you're signing up with your cloud vendor on. And most of the time, it's on the outcharge. If you know where the catches are, you can exploit the cloud and use the cloud quite well and allow yourself to scale. And then when you're ready to move, maybe leave all your data in the cloud because you have a local copy, a local cold copy that you then populate your private cloud with. I've seen probably more times of failure to do that than I have successes to do that. The cost to make a local copy is not expensive, especially when you talk about the same technologies that most of the cloud vendors are using for their cold tiers, which is you know SMR disk, tape, or something very low cost from a dollar per gig. If you're doing that locally, the value here is you don't have to back it up. You can make the one copy on your local premise and you can use your cloud copy because you have now two copies of your data. So it's protected. Not making that copy and thinking about pulling down a petabyte of data from the cloud, get out the company checkbook because it's going to be a big check. I mean, that is ultimately the problem, isn't it? The fact that you say, that's fine, it's all sitting there, but now I want to use it. And if you haven't kept the local copy, the local copy could be cheaper than just pulling that data away from the cloud to even use it. It's a tricky one, though, because as we start to become more diverse with our technology, and we might have some technology sitting in the cloud, and we might use virtual machines, or we might use some of the cloud-like AI-type tools, in some respects, we want to be able to processing or work in both places. So keeping that data synchronized, I think in itself is a bit of a challenge. Generally, an asynchronous environment is difficult to manage. Again, setting up the proper workflow, if you're going to do, for example, transcode in the cloud, you're going to have a bucket that's being watched, a transcode engine sitting there watching that bucket for new content, and most likely an output bucket for the transcoded data that then gets pulled back down, or maybe left in the cloud for play out or something else. So you kind of architect this. It's really where is the main copy? Where's number one? Where's the root copy? I will tell you, if you're a data holder, a data owner, data is your job, the root copy should be most likely on-prem. If you're a coffee shop or a hardware store, I'm okay with your data being one copy in the cloud and maybe a copy over in another cloud place are two diverse copies that meet my architectural requirements. But when you're a data holder, the big thing is where is the cost to get it and the speed. Everybody talks about these dynamic pipes that don't exist. You know, I have a one gig pipe, but if I need to, I can get a 10 gig pipe. No, you can't get a 10 gig pipe like that. You can sign up and get a 10 gig pipe and sign up for a three-year contract, and then you can start pulling your data. And there's a little bit more. When you dive into these contracts, you see little clauses about, for example, how much data you can pull down for free. And one of them is you can pull down 4% of your data per month from one of the cloud providers for free. But if you read the finer print below that, it is 4% of 1 30th of the day. So if you missed day one, you've lost 1 30th of that 4%. Let's just go back over that again. So what you're saying is take the 4% divided over the course of a month so that you've got a percentage per day. Yes. And then if you use it on that day, you've used it. If you don't use it on that day, you've lost it. It's not like that allowance continues to the end of the month where it resets again. No, you get a little bit each day a little stipend each day of what you can pull. And these contracts are that, I don't want to say tricky because that's really not the right word, but you have to read into every line and really calculate how you're going to use the data. So for example, that one thirtieth of 4% may be very viable for a workflow that's always kind of putting up and getting down an automated workflow. But when humans are involved, they're going to wait till the 29th of the month and pull a bunch of stuff down. (laughs) Again, you're going to have a nice uh, check to write. 
So I just want to go back to that a second, because I think that's quite an important fact to go back over. Now, a vendor doesn't put in something like that deliberately. I mean, that's not something that that's an Amazon or Azure or Google would put in just to be awkward to the customer to try and catch them out to make more money. I think that that comes from an indication of the way that the architecture is implemented. Resource lovely. So it's a case of saying, actually, what we're trying to do is minimize our back-end costs and or it's the way that we've designed our system that simply doesn't allow us to move that data that quickly across the network. So if we put a charge in place, if you do that, or if we set the contract up in such a way, it means that you will be penalized and we hope that that will nudge you to not do that. And that will not cause us to have to put our costs up by putting more infrastructure in place. So I think it highlights the fact that in these cloud environments that it's still really important to have a good idea of what they might be doing in terms of their architecture. I would say that if you're designing a generic cloud, your goal is to have a very common infrastructure for everything. One infrastructure serves all things. And one infrastructure for all customers may not, to your point, may not be the right infrastructure for each customer. They may want to have a burst down, which then, if it's on the 30th of the month, better yet, let's take the end of the financial year. Think about what could happen at the end of a financial year to a cloud provider if they didn't have those clauses in there to protect their ecosystem. So to your point, that's what they're doing there. When you exceed their limits, they charge you. I think it makes it very interesting because now when we're talking about design, when we're talking about building an infrastructure and an architecture, we're not taking into consideration purely the technical aspects of how we think we want these things to connect and interact. We're having to look deeper into the service characteristics of the platform that we're being given or we're using, and we have to determine exactly how they impact the way that our application works. Let's face it, we always used to understand how our own on-premises applications work, because we always had times when we'd see peaks or we'd see things, and people would come to us and say, I've got a problem, I need this tomorrow, and so that's nothing new. But we have to do exactly that within the public clouds as much as we did it on-premises. And you have to calculate it. The spreadsheet you're going to be building to now model your workload against a public cloud it's a complex spreadsheet. And to the point about the data coming back, we actually modeled one where you had that one thirtieth of 4% that you could pull down. We modeled it. Is it better to take your stipend every day and use it all the way down to get make it a petabyte, to get a petabyte out of the cloud? Or do you pay the retrieval cost and go as fast as your pipe is? And the odd one for me was it's actually cheaper to pull it all. Wow. Okay. Because that 4% isn't enough. The storage charge over the time isn't enough. And so it eats into that. The outcharges are extreme, but they're actually better than waiting the months and months and months and months to get all of your data out and do it freely. So we've highlighted the fact that this isn't just about the ability to use the cloud for what it is. We've realized that there are architectural challenges around understanding how it all fits together. So how would you recommend that customers go about looking at either using the cloud in its entirety Comparing that to on-premises, building a hybrid solution, is this really about sitting down and building an incredibly complicated spreadsheet? Is it about understanding your workflow? Is it about all of that? You know, what do you normally do when you go through this process? Even though cloud has presented a one-fits-all infrastructure, I don't think it's that for the customer. Each customer is slightly different. A friend of mine, Ed Childers, had a great analogy for cloud and who should not use it. And it is, if you're factory, you build a factory and it consumes all the power of a power plant. You should build your own power plant. You should become vertically integrated. Yeah. And that's somewhat true for cloud. When you are consuming enough of the cloud where you could stand up the infrastructure and be as efficient, you should be standing up your own infrastructure. And it flips to, let's go back to that. If your workflow is in the cloud 
and you have a speculative petabyte that's up in the cloud, you still may want to keep your backup copy, your copy of last resort on-prem. Maybe not ever access, but on-prem. The value of that copy is, A, you can shut the cloud off anytime you want and not have the outcharges. If the cloud has a problem, which if you look at any cloud provider, they've lost some data sometime in their life. If they lose your data, you have a backup copy. It's on a most likely genetically diverse, geographically separated, all the nice rules of data provenance. It's covered that. So when you're thinking about going to cloud, I would never jump all the way in and say, all of my data goes to the cloud and we're good, we're done. That's the mistake that I think people make is they think they can put it all in the cloud and be done. You can make a copy in the cloud. I have a customer today who has data on tape in two locations and wants to close a location. He wants to put a copy in the cloud and never touch it. That is ideal for him. Genetic diversity, separation, all the things he needs. And if he has the oh no moment, he can pay and get his data. That's another interesting angle, and it's one I was thinking about as you were explaining that, and that's the idea of insurance policies and the what if and the impact and the risk. So you can look at all of those together, and I think for me, I always think that probably because I'm old enough to have used technology when there wasn't anything called, well, there was something called the cloud. It was called a systems house or it was something like that, where, you know, a bureau of service, where it, it was a cloud effectively. But in fact, I actually worked my first job was working for a bureau service that sold effectively cloud services to their customers. So we ran the mainframe on which many customers ran their businesses. So we were a cloud company. But within all of that, the one thing I think I've always been very worried about is somebody else owning my data protection process. I, you know, managing my data and making sure that I'm not going to lose it and that I've kept enough copies and I refresh the content over time. I'd much rather that was my job than somebody else's. And that's just the way I am. And I do think that that's really quite important because if you put your data in the cloud and they have some sort of failure and something goes wrong, you're not going to get paid by them for the loss of business that you suffer. You're only going to get paid for the loss of that access of that data or a minimum amount of tiny credits. So it's still incumbent on you to look after your own content, I think. Oh, if you think you have teeth against the cloud company, that's silly. I mean, I would say that just any IT manager kind of worth his salt would understand that his job is to protect the company's IT assets. How he does that is his thing. But if he offloads that and says, oh, well, it's in the cloud, and if I lose it, it's their fault, he's not a very responsible IT manager. Yeah. So within your business then, let's just go and talk about Spectrologic there for a little while because we're coming towards the end of our time. We should definitely talk about your technology. And in fact, I have a great picture of, I don't know whether you still have it in place, of the really large single library in one of your rooms that's got about, I don't know, it had about 20 or 30 different individual tape silos all bolted together. So obviously you make tape, you make tape libraries, you build those sort of enormous tape libraries that people might want to put petabytes and petabytes of data on. We're seeing the ability to put large volumes of data into a very small space getting better and better over the years. So what are you doing in terms of what your technology looks like and how does that affect your view when you start looking at cloud cost, and let me explain that before we go any further, and then it'll make sense. One of the things I noticed that the cloud providers are not doing is necessarily re returning all of the savings to you that possibly you can get by using larger media. They did for a while, and then they stopped. So from your perspective, you know, you're sort of looking at it selling tape and disk systems. So where do you see the on-premises side of that going? I would say it this way. The on-premise side of it for large tape, we still sell 
little baby tape libraries and small disk subsystems. But for the larger systems, the customer base themselves is declining the number of sheer customers, but the size of each customer is doubling that. So if I'm losing 20% of my customers per year, the size of the customer coming to me is 50% bigger than the previous year. We just installed at four different national laboratories this year, massive systems, petabytes and petabytes and petabytes that run at 50, 60, 75 gig a second. So those systems are designed to be basically their version of the cloud. They are installing a cloud. Um, They don't call it a cloud, but it is equivalent to what a public cloud provider would be installing one of their data centers. So that customer base has become much more savvy on the different technologies that are out there. They're also looking at how do they stay in front of the data needs? Because when they're that big, their data growth is sometimes outpacing the technology roadmap. And that's a dangerous thing when you think about, let's take tape as doubling in capacity every two and a half years and disk is growing every three, three and a half years. If you're outpacing that, then that means you have a real estate problem and a power problem and all these other things that come along. So I think from a large data holder, that customer is becoming their own personal cloud. They're understanding the cloud technologies. We deploy, let's just say, a 23-frame tape library at a national lab. I think in the next five years or so, we're going to start seeing customers start to deploy erasure code and object storage and other things that are using backends that may be tape, but they're actually doing it more like disk farms, more like the cloud vendors, as opposed to what they do today, which is they started with a one-frame or two-frame tape library, and it just grew and grew and grew. I think they're going to get into an architecture long-term in years from now where it's erasure code on tape, right? There's 20 tape libraries in the system, and each one of them holds six of 10 of the data set. And then obviously that, from an architectural position, that's something that's a bit of a challenge because now you've got to really work out how you're going to make that operate efficiently because when you know it takes time to mount a tape and it takes time to forward a tape to the right position and i know that you put technology in front of that which will allow you to cache that to a certain degree so you can manage that process it's an interesting thought that we'll end up with a position where we've got masses and masses of data that still sits on tape when people think we've moved away from tape i think people probably don't realize that how much data is sitting on tape behind even the cloud service providers A gentleman I just recently hired was the CIO for the post office through the year 2000. He now works for us. And he was really shocked at how far tape has come since he's been out of the tape game for a while. And it is one of those things where it's just massive amounts of data are going on tape and no one knows that's where it's at. And to your question about, you know, there's a queuing time, there's a time to get to data, there's the mount time. General, these these systems are more like a ride at Disneyland than they are a bank teller or something small like a kiosk machine. In other words, we always have a line of work. There's a line of work for us to do that's out in front of us where we're always mounting tapes. There's not a lot of idle time. And the systems that are then importing the data, let's take the supercomputer or the render engine, it knows there's a job coming. So it's passed down this job to us to say, get all of these files ready for render. And then it watches the disk cache and says, okay, all the files are ready. Now I'll lock up a few hundred cores and start to do the render. It doesn't lock those cores and wait 10 minutes for all the data to come out of the archive. It's doing another job, waiting, 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 filling up that cache. And it's the same. I mean, if you think about architecture of a computer, there's caches in a computer. Data comes off disk and goes into a cache. Everybody thinks they read off the disk drive. No, the data hits a cache in the CPU or in RAM, and then it comes off that. 
It's just different scaling, isn't it? I mean, at the end of the day, you've got level one, level two, level three cache in the CPU. You've got DRAM. You've got disk sitting behind a controller. You've got flash. You've got persistent memory. Each of those offering a certain degree of hierarchy. What you're saying is just there's a different hierarchy further down the bottom of that stack, which happens to be tape and maybe some caching sitting in front of that that's managing that process. So we're going to see tape around for a long time. I think just to wrap up then, let's just try and summarize what we think that customers really need to think about when they're looking at whether they should, let's call it build buy, you know, should you build on-prem or should you actually use the cloud? Or should you use a combination of both? I mean, where would you suggest people start? How should they go about trying to find this information? Should they come to Spectrologic and say, please help us because we've got all the information? Or, you know, feel free to plug yourself, you know, at this point. Yeah, our guys are very good at, we have calculators on the cloud that help you calculate the cost of going to the cloud versus an on-prem system. In general, I would never say the cloud is the wrong choice for a customer unless they came to me and said, I'm putting one copy in the cloud. That's all I'm going to do. And yes, I'm going to hit it a lot and pull 20% of my data down. That's the CIO coming down and dictating go to cloud. That's a terribly bad model for most companies. But I would do if I was the company and you do want to look at cloud is look at how much data you're accessing, how much, what your growth rates are, what's your ability to buy bandwidth, what is the fixed bandwidth cost? What are you using today? And how much would you need to add to that? Bandwidth is inexpensive, but people think it goes down fast in price. It goes down about 17% per year. It's not a great decline. And you're usually locked in for a three to five year contract on a fixed rate so that there's a big step, but it's a big price. And so when we've done calculations, I did a conference last year or the year before STS, the Storage Technology Showcase. And I did a rent versus buy analogy. I did Uber. And I said, if I take Uber and not buy a car, what are my savings? And I did a meal plan program. If I just get my meals from a meal plan program. And I did a hotel. I think, oh, it was Airbnb. I did Airbnb instead of buying a house. And those work for short-term, small-time needs. And they're better than buying. But when you exploit that and take it all the way to one month, one year, it blows the budget. And it's the same with cloud. When you start to use a cloud as your full-on data center and you're doing retrievals and pulling down and doing scratch work on a file system locally, that's going to blow your budget. Well, I think there's lots there for people to think about, Matt. So where should we point them to if they'd like to follow you online or and Spectrologic as well? Where should we point them to? So I'm on the Star Files on uh, Twitter. Spectrologic.com has a lot of resources on going to the cloud and cloud calculations. Certainly, if you want to get to the cloud and you want to do it with some on-premise stuff, our Black Pearl product is ideal for that. It has local on-site disk on-site tape with copies in the cloud that you can access from anywhere in the world. Easy ways to do it. Fantastic. Matt, thank you for joining me. I appreciate it. Good to talk to you and I look forward to catching up soon. Yeah. Thanks, Chris. You've been listening to the Hybrid Cloud Podcast from Architecting IT. For show notes and more, subscribe at hybridcloudpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at Architecting IT or join our LinkedIn group by searching for Architecting IT. You can find us on all good podcatchers, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify.